Hey, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good thing it's nice and cool in here, right? So there's two things um, around this time of year with, in terms of church life. I get really sad because summer's coming to an end. Um, but then I get really excited in terms of Sunday morning that August is coming to an end. Um, this summer we had a lot of hot weekends. Last year we got away with some cool ones. So if you're, oh, thank you. This isn't mine, but thank you. Actually, there's, no, that's yours. Thanks. Thanks for bringing someone else's. It's definitely not because mine was a large. I can't find my iced coffee and it's killing me. I'm like taking shots of other people's iced coffee. Uh, anyway, my name is, if you're new with us, we recognize it's a bit warm in here. Uh, we can't do anything about it except uh, fan each other with the love of Christ. That's in there somewhere in the scriptures. Um, so uh, we apologize for the heat. Um, uh, and if you are new with us, my name is Andrew. I'm a, one of the pastor's leaders here at the church. And um, I have the opportunity of teaching this morning. Uh, but I want to just get through a couple of quick announcements. Uh, one, I was asked by, it had to have been at least six people. Um, and I won't give you the context for all of them. But they are all incredibly similar. And they all happen to be women. Uh, who came to me and said, hey, we really should have a discussion um, around dating and sex and singleness uh, and being a couple that's not married yet. Um, they all were said with a little bit of edge to them. Um, <laughs> like, you should really talk about that more. So, um, brothers, maybe you <laughs> we should show up. Uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, this Monday, um, all joking aside, we have these things called table events and basically, they're an opportunity to get particular groupings in our community. Uh, we have men's tables, women's tables. We've had one that was a married couple's one. Uh, this is a singles one. So if you are, um, all the info is in your bulletin. Um, but if you are in a relationship and not married, uh, if you are single uh, and looking for someone, ready to mingle, uh, or if you are uh, single and actually not looking for someone, you're really actually excited about um, being single and what that just means for you right now. Um, that so often is like one of those categories that we in our culture uh, and even sometimes in the church, we tend to sort of like, oh, no, everybody. I mean, that's the best covenant you can make is a married covenant, right? Uh, not, I mean, not according to Jesus or Paul or, you know, most of the most inspi inspiring figures throughout history actually never took a spouse. There might be a reason behind that. Uh, <laughs> so we're just going to um, have a big meal together, and then we're going to have a, a small panel that's just going to just talk through some questions uh, that people have. A lot of people have been submitting questions. You can submit them to our info account. Again, all the info is in your bulletin. Uh, and then I'm going to give a, a really short kind of talk on, like, a theology of singleness. Like, what does that mean to be single uh, and, and the flourishing of that? Um, so it'll uh, be about an hour and a half to two hours, depending on how long dinner comes. <clears throat> but come, and uh, if you could, bring a few extra dollars in cash. Cool. Anybody got AA batteries on them? No? All right, awesome. Uh, so if we don't find any, I'll just grab a different mic. Anyway, all that said, I want to encourage you to come. Here's the one catch. If you don't RSVP, um, then you don't get food. So we need you, if you plan on coming, uh, to RSVP either online on the city 
or RSVP on your high card and do it right now so you don't forget. Just write singles or singles table on your high card, and you can either leave the high card on the uh, pew or put it in the offering basket when it goes around. Uh,
will go to that retreat to create an on-ramp for folks. So if you'd like to become a partner, sign up, please, on, uh, for that date at the end of August that's in your bulletin. And um, if you are a partner, make sure you knock that date out. Uh, and that's going to, again, be an all-day thing on September 12th, the retreat. It'll be like a 10 to 5, and then we're going to go down to Narragansett Beach and have a big cookout on the beach, which is going to be awesome just to kind of close the time. So, um, so that's all. Let me pray for us. I found my coffee. Give it up. So this was Jess. This was my coffee. Jess was trying to say this was her coffee. That's good. Thank you. Lord Jesus, <laughs> thank you for coffee. Lord, thank you uh, for, for this space. Thank you that we have a kid's space to renovate. Lord, thank you um, for all these uh, just children. Um, uh, I love, I just more and more love what this church is becoming as we're seeing more like, like minority leadership up front as we're seeing um, like an ever-growing abundance of younger millennials and as we're seeing older folks come and gray hairs and as we're seeing more and more kids running in the aisle disturbing service, I, I just, I, I, I hope that like makes your, like you smile, Lord. I hope that we're, we're becoming a, a church that, that um, reflects more and more of, of humanity, reflects more and more of our city. We realize that we need the children in our church so we can learn what you are like. That's what you tell us in scriptures. We need to know more and more of what you are like. We need to learn from them, and we need to serve them as, as the most vulnerable in our community. And so um, we just give you thanks, God, for, um, for an opportunity like this this morning. And we pray through my fumbling words. We pray that through the remaining part of the music and through taking the Eucharist, through these just regular simple rhythms that we do every week, that you would um, give us hearts that are um, open. I use this analogy all the time, God, but I don't know a better one. Like, like actually open-minded, like actually ready to receive something. That we would find ourselves caught up in your story caught up in your love and in your life. Lord, help us push back the lists of what needs to happen at 11.30 when we're done with service. Help us to push back whatever anxieties the rest of this day may bring. Help us to push back whatever tasks need to be completed and just be present, to take a deep breath and to be aware of what's happening right here. And may the music downstairs be a little quieter than normal. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs> I love it. It's just a constant soundtrack underneath the talk all the time. So uh, as just mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're doing this series on spiritual practices. Uh, throughout history, they've been called spiritual disciplines. Uh, and we've called it day one. The idea is like, what is like just the first step? Like the first move. So in a culture where, where everyone is, is pushing uh, so we are being formed all the time into particular kinds of people. There's good things. There's bad things. There's sort of indifferent things that could be used for good or bad. There's stuff around all the time shaping us that we as a church, as followers of Jesus, there's something that we identify with, like a, a way. And so we want to be aligned with that. And so we've used the analogy of eating. We've used the analogy of the gym 
that we want to be a, a community um, that is uh, eagerly seeking, that we have a culture of pursuit. We've dropped this quote, I think, almost every single service, and I think it's apropos from Dallas Willard. He says, God is not opposed to effort. He's opposed to earning. So we don't need to earn God's love, earn God's favor, earn the grace of God. We recognize that at the center of the universe, his personality is, is, a, is God reflected in the person of Jesus. So we don't need to earn anything, but God is not opposed to effort. Because throughout the scripture, earnestly seeking God is what we're called to do. And that because we're constantly being formed, we need to make an extra effort. Paul says like a boxer or like someone running the race. We need to actually make sure that we are turning our attention towards the thing that matter most and, and disciplining ourselves like anything else. And so we've been shaping, uh, we've been organizing these disciplines around our, our cultural values. And so if you're new to our church, we have these uh, four values and we, we frame them up like directions. And so this is what we say. We as Sanctuary Church want to travel inward. We want to travel inward. All right, I'll start actually. I should go in order. We want to travel upward. We want to make sure everything begins with God. But worship is the surrender that we are not the ones on the throne, that God is the source of all love and beauty and life. We begin there. And then we move inward. It says that God wants to reconcile us. It says in 1 Corinthians, God is reconciling us, putting us back together. And then it says we are supposed to join him in the ministry of reconciliation as though God were making his appeal through us so that we then turn outward and we travel outward to be a church that isn't obsessed with its four walls and building its thing for the sake of itself. No, 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 we're excited to build this thing for the sake of our city because we want to be people that are equipped, that are sort of agents going out into the world to seek first the way of God, the way of love and justice and beauty, to demonstrate, Jesus says, and announce the gospel, the good news that Jesus is Lord and that we have been saved by his grace. And then lastly, our last direction, which is a made-up word, is withward. So everything we travel together. So in all things, this is not an individual thing. No, we are called to travel. It's really difficult, if not impossible, to be actually a follower of Jesus um, and be isolated from other people. So these are our four directions. So what we've done is taken these practices, these ways of running the race, these ways of like training our bodies and training our minds to follow the way of Jesus, this culture of pursuit, and these ancient practices um, that throughout history the church has used. We've sort of uh, decided to um, categorize them underneath our four directions. Is this making sense? So our inward, our upward, our outward, our withward. And so we've had different people sharing around what are a couple disciplines that, that make sense underneath this category. And then the, lastly, what we've done is put together a resource for you. Uh, and it's, uh, if you can put up the slide, it's sanctuaryday1.com. So we thought instead of like printing something out, actually it might be helpful that it's always there, right there, a click away on your mobile phone. And so there's just questions to ask. What are the goals of this particular practice? And so we've had different people over the course of the summer share on different practices. And we've been adding to them and adding more information. In fact, if you check back tonight, there'll be a bunch more and some better questions kind of underneath them uh, or suggestions on how to live these out. But they're really practical things. Sometimes sermons are meant to, like, inspire us. Sometimes teachings and music are meant to just kind of fill us with a sense of hope 
or call attention to brokenness inside of us. But sometimes series or teachings or certain things are meant to really just help us like, like tomorrow. Like what's the thing? And so the first week we talked about, I won't go through the whole list, don't worry. But like we talked about secrecy. Like how do we practice things in such a way that no one else knows so we're aware of our intentions. Last week Lonnie talked about relinquishing the false self, being aware of the false self, and then listed off a couple ways we can do that that are on this, the, again, on the website. And so our hope is that even if it's just one practice that you begin to adopt and that starts to happen, maybe it's like once every week. Maybe and it starts to happen like once every day. Maybe it's a practice that you can do regularly. Uh, Chris Bannon talked about fixed hour prayer. I know a lot of you have started to actually like put in your phone like an alarm that goes off three times a day that just reminds you to stop, take a deep breath, and recenter yourself on Jesus. So there's so many tools and so many resources out there. We wanted to kind of try to put them all in one place. Uh, so please, I just encourage you to keep utilizing that and practicing that. So today, I'm talking about the outward disciplines. Uh, and I'm going to just kind of begin with uh, revisiting an incredibly familiar story. So if you have your, uh, your Bibles with you, it is not on the screen. It's Luke 10. Luke 10. And we're going to start in verse 25. Anyone heard the, the parable or the story of the Good Samaritan? Anyone ever heard the story of the Good Samaritan? Cool. You're going to hear it again. <laughs> On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. We'll get back to that in a minute. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So he's telling him a story in response. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, this guy in a ditch, everyone got the story? This guy in a ditch, or on the side of the road, Two people go by. We're going to get to the, who these people are in a moment. And then this third character, this Samaritan character, he comes by. He saw him and he took pity on him. That's, not po that's a positive thing, by the way, in this context. It's not like, a, oh, I feel bad for you. Apparently that's how you take pity on someone. Oh, I feel bad for you. You have a sort of a Midwestern accent. Oh, don't you know. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, which is a sign of healing. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which, so he turns back to the man, tells this guy the story, and he goes, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So, 
This sometimes gets relegated to a story about like helping, like it's like roadside assistance. Which if that's the way you've read the story in the past, like that's not a bad thing. Someone's on the side of the road, pull over. Some of you know a little bit more about the story, which we're going to get into, which is, oh, the Samaritan's like the most unlikely person to actually help, which is part of it. Jesus is inviting and making an invitation uh, around uh, kind of like who is, who, who can be merciful and who can't be. But the more and more we understand the context, we have to make sure that we zero in on the whole point of Jesus asking this story, which is this question. This question that he asked. What's the question in the text? Who is my neighbor? So a few things in context. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This was like a lawyer. And not a lawyer in the modern sense. This was literally somebody who argued, debated, and made sense of the law. The law is the Torah. How many of you know that have ever heard the term Torah before? This is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It was called um, the, the, the way of life. It was also called the truth. Interesting, who else was called the way and the truth and the life? Jesus is the culmination of the Torah. This was the way in which the sort of covenant that God said, if you live like this, this is the way to life. And so baked into these ancient stories and laws and poems and accounts is everything. Everything in the Jewish mind Everything revolves around Torah. There's much, much to get into, but this was a document of grace. This was a document of love. This was showing even just these weird arbitrary laws. It was a reminder that everything in this world is spiritual, that God cares about our thriving, about our flourishing. This, This was so important. And so that's why Jesus, being a good rabbi, when asked this question, he goes, well, what's written in the law? Now, the teacher's first question is what? What's the first question the, the teacher asks? The, the expert, sorry, the expert asks. What must I do to inherit eternal life? If you were to ask the average Protestant, what would they say to that question? What on earth does, 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 does the law and have to do with eternal life. Apparently it has something to do with it. We would say, all right, if you believe in Jesus and put him inside of your blood pumping muscle, you will go to heaven when you die. And you don't really need to worry about anything else. Just be a decent, nice person. No, eternal life is not not something in the future, but for a good Jew, for, for the whole concept of eternal life, this is the kingdom of God. Eternal life meant the life of the ages. In the Hebrew, it was the term olam haba which meant the life of the age to come. What must I do to walk in the life of heaven? Which is why it's interesting when the disciples ask Jesus later on, how should we pray? And that the center of his prayer is what? May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Pray to God that we would see heaven come to earth. This is not about extraction. This isn't about believing in a couple random points about, do you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again? Okay, cool. God's just waiting for you to tick that box, baby, and then you're good. This is sometimes the subtle thing that kicks in. It's just not biblical. It's something that's kind of been a reaction when we look at the 20th century to some bad theology in a different direction the century before. But I will not go down that tangent, I promise you. He's saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to walk in the way of God, in the way of Torah, in the way of life? 
Remember, Jesus, and this is not what this expert's asking, says, I have come to give you life and life to the full, which is what the Torah was promised. In fact, that exact language you can see in rabbinical literature. Fascinating. The Bible is a super interesting document. You should read it. (laughs) That wasn't a jab. I'm sure you're all reading it all the time. So he answered, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? So ask the question. So it'd be like Brad comes to me and he goes, hey, Andrew, uh, what do you think about blank? And I go, well, uh, you've read the law. What do you think about blank? That's what Jesus just did. He did not answer the question. He asked another question, which is fairly normal for a rabbi. Very normal for a rabbi. So the expert in the law, the guy who's there to debate, the guy who has shown up to press Jesus, this new rabbi is getting a lot of attention. He's like the rock star rabbi. He's gathering all these people. He's creating this, like, stir around him. And so this expert goes to him and asks, okay, so uh, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asks the question back, and then the expert goes, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as, our, as yourself. This is the way of life. And we know this is true. It's said in the Torah itself, Jesus affirms this in his own ministry, at the center of everything, at the center of life. In fact, it says, um, it says in John, this is eternal life to know God, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These two things are linked. This is what it is to live the life of the ages. Jesus affirms, you have, it's sort of like this, the Yoda moment, like, you have answered wisely. I don't think Yoda ever says that. Who says that? You have answered, you have answered why, what am I, Monty Python? I don't know. It doesn't matter. This is Jesus, supersedes all that. You've answered correctly. Jesus replied, do this and you will live. Just to reinforce. He's like, all right, if you do that, you will live. What are you asking me for? But everybody knows in this story, and we even know as the reader, translated into English two centuries later, there's something else going on here. This can't be the end of the story. Jesus is like, that's cool. Good answer. Knowing there is something else coming. But he wanted, and here's our proof, he wanted to justify himself. He wants to debate. He wants to get into it. He wants to provoke, and he wants to assert his own opinion. He's one of these people that comes, and for every response he's going to get, he knows he's got one loaded up. And so he wanted to justify himself. And now we get to the real point of why this expert in the law, this religious person, comes to Jesus and asks him a question. He says, and who is my neighbor? So it's this very, like, coy interchange. Dear Rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know. What do you think? Well, we all know it says this. Way to go. Good job. Yeah, but so who is my neighbor? It's sort of like like the air gets sucked out of the room. Because this question is central to everything. Like who really is my neighbor? Who is God talking about? Everyone can agree. In fact, there are people in this room right now who are not Christians. I have some friends who've like shown up today. They wanted to like see me and hang out and make fun of the fact that I still believe in Jesus. Just kidding, guys. And they, we would all agree, yeah, loving your neighbor, good thing. Humanity would be better if more people loved their neighbor. 
But even today, the question is, who is your neighbor? Is ISIS our neighbor? Is, the actual, is he just talking about the person who literally lives next door to you? Is it just other Christians, or in this case, other Jews? Just other Jews who behave a certain way? Only folks in my particular stream? Only folks who agree with this? Well, it can't be those folks. Who is your neighbor is the question asked. And so in reply, Jesus launches into the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Some, just real quick side note, just because I stink and love the Bible. Some people have, have postured that Jesus is actually joking right here, too. He's, like, making a little joke. Like, because he's about to talk about somebody who, like, was going down a road and then fell into a ditch. But the road, at least now, from Jericho, or, or historians have pointed out that this road that Jesus just described has, like, cliffs on either side. So Jesus is like, so there's this road, and somebody, like, fell off into a ditch, i.e., you die. Anyway, I thought it was really funny. Like, a bunch of historians kind of comment, like, isn't that really, isn't that funny? Jesus is telling a joke. I'm amused by really silly things. In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he was attacked by robbers. This was a pretty normal occurrence. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Nakedness in this culture is absolutely critical to the details of the story. Unbelievable shame put on the naked body. The priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Priests would have been somebody who should have stopped. Priests would have been somebody who should have stopped and helped. We can, even though this is obviously not talking about our modern day pastors and priests, but it might as well be. These were the religious elite. These were the people leading the people, connecting. The priest's job was to connect people to the divine. Priest happened to be going down the same road and he saw the man and he passed by him on the other side. So too, a Levite, this is someone else, was a part of the religious establishment. When he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, the Levite should have stopped. This is a man who's on the side of the road, and the pastor comes by, and like a deacon comes by. Somebody else, like the person who's in charge of justice ministries and outreach. The person who's like super like great and helps coordinate volunteers to serve in the poorest part of the city, see somebody on the side of the road is hurting, and they walk by. And now we get to the fun part of the story. But a Samaritan, <coughs> just to mention a Samaritan in any sort of positive context, which is coming, would have been so ridiculous. We, uh, we hear the, the term a good Samaritan, that's the name of the story. This is a pretty normal thing. Right, we have whole ministries. There's giant nonprofits called like the Samaritan's Purse and the Good Samaritan. And we hear this even in culture that's not Christian culture. This would have been an oxymoron for the religious leader. A good Samaritan. A good Samaritan. It's not those two things do not go together. It's like like a, it'd be like a good cat. Like these two things do. They don't go together. Like they, it's not possible for the for you both a cat and <laughs> kidding, mostly. A good Samaritan. There were prayers in the temple 
that went something like this. Thank you, God, that I am not a leper. Thank you, God, that I, this would be in the religious elite amongst the, the Levites and the priests in the temple. Thank you, God, that I am not a woman. These are documented things. I know, I'm sorry. And thank you, God, that I am not a Samaritan. This was the lowest of the thank. We, they would pray to the Father, thank you that I am not them. These were like the, the mixed breed. These were, this, this was just good old-fashioned racism. They were out. There's a number of reasons I could go down the list of why they were considered less than. Just interesting because Jesus spends an awkward amount of time with these folks. The Samaritan comes down and he takes pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Again, signs of healing for a good Jew. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn. So he didn't just care for him there. This isn't just a brief moment of charity. He actually goes all the way, takes him, puts him on a donkey, brings him to the innkeeper, gives the innkeeper money and says, look, if he's not better, like, trust me, I will come back and give you more money. He does his due diligence. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Verse 36, Jesus then asked the question to the religious leader, to the expert in the law who's trying to pigeonhole him and find out if Jesus is a heretic, if Jesus is off his rocker, if Jesus is not really following good Jewish law. He's telling me that a story of a Samaritan who's already the worst of the worst went and engaged somebody who's naked, bloody, two things you shouldn't touch at all. And then he asked the question to the expert. So who is the merciful one with no room to move? The religious expert can't even say a Samaritan. Says the one who had mercy on him. I always imagine the expert of the law after hearing the story, just like, like he's really engaged. He thinks he's got Jesus. Oh, who's in? He's waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. Jesus gives this story, and he's sort of caught in this moment where there's, who's the merciful one? Obviously, it's the Samaritan. And I just imagine the expert just being like, Jesus, so Jesus, Jesus, Jesus just asked, like, so who's the merciful one? Huh? Can't hear you. Who's the merciful one? The one who had mercy, the one who showed him mercy, the one who showed him. Like you can't even say the Samaritan. It's like when people like break up with their girlfriend or boyfriend, or God forbid, or like in a divorce, they talk about what? They don't mention like, oh yeah, my ex-girlfriend Susie. It's just like my ex. Right? I don't even want to like say or identify the name. So who who is the who, who's the one? Who's your neighbor? It's the one who had mercy on him. And then he says, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. This is absolutely brilliant. And the way that Jesus is reframing the discussion around who your neighbor actually is. He's saying actually if the the people that you thought were your neighbor, it's actually a little bit bigger. The circle that you had placed all your neighbors in is actually a, a, a bit bigger. Like the Samaritan is the hero in the story. This is like the like 
ISIS seal clubber, you know, puppy drowner. Like this is like the worst figure in this culture. And he props them up and says, so who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Some people have talked about the Good Samaritan story also in a flip way. Where if we're going to take from this story the charge, right? What's the natural, like, moment right now for me as a pastor? So what are our takeaways? Hey, who you think your neighbor is is probably a bit bigger than the circle that you've placed them around. Who you're called to love may expand beyond the folks that it's just easiest to love. Right? The most poor and broken and vulnerable among us. Like, these are the people like that you need to be engaged in and be looking out for because the, the, the most poor and broken and vulnerable are actually there are two of them. There's the one who fell in the ditch and then, then there's the actually the Samaritan, the one who's most oppressed and pushed to the outside. These people are your neighbor. And we could just leave, yeah, okay, we could do a better job of that. Well, there's some practices to do that. But if we were to flip the story, I think it helps us get at how we do this well. Imagine the Samaritan to be actually Jesus. Like, in, in this story, you are the one in the ditch. And so the person, the God in this case, the person who, who, who owes you nothing, who we're told in Scripture um, we were enemies of God before God intervened. Like, our propensity is actually to choose life and to have faith in things that are not life-giving that are things away from the way of Jesus. We know this. It's why we, every single Sunday, we have a time of confession and assurance because we recognize as followers of Jesus that we're bent, that our posture, like the two-year-old like, who's really selfish, like the person who wants to do great loving acts and, and can't, like the person who can't shake the addiction, like the person who does not engage, whether you like are, are, are a borderline serial killer here today or whether you have moments of deep crankiness, like we all fall short, it says in Scripture. We all miss the mark, the greatness that we are called to be, the image of God that is ingrained in us. We recognize that forces beyond ourselves and forces in us constantly lead us into a way of death. Our story is that we choose death. And what's interesting is that scripture talks about then there's this sort of, there's this gap between us and God. There's this chasm. There's this disconnect where we do not trust what Jesus has done for us. If we were to place ourselves and the person who's in the ditch and Jesus is the good Samaritan, we get this moment, I get this moment of realizing and owning that the person who owes me nothing that the person that I have a tendency to ignore, run from, make grieve over me, do evil to, walk away from constantly, make life choices that we know hurt the heart of the father. Like they hurt the heart of a good father who wants what's best for us. And we like little kids who keep wanting to play and run around on Interstate 95. We keep doing it. We keep making the stupid decisions making the heart of a father weep, the father who, owes, who, who we owe nothing to, comes and pulls us out of the ditch and puts us on his donkey and walks us to the inn 
He takes care of us. This is, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is everything that we experience when we come to the communion table, when we come to the Eucharist and are reminded that as Christians, it's really hard for us to be like really good Bible readers and hate our enemy. It's got to be really hard for us to not pray for everybody that we deem to be like the like worst. Whether that's annoying person in our neighborhood who we know is a jerk and makes unwise choices, to whether it's we like or don't like whoever's in public office right now, or whether we're talking about people on the other side of the world. As Christians, it's literally not possible if we're going to be good Bible-believing Christians, not only not to hate, but to not extend love and grace and mercy to every single person ever. Can I get an amen? Because we recognize that we were in the ditch and the God of the universe has come by his grace and said, I love you. I am for you. I've forgiven you right where you are in all of your mess, in your nakedness and cut up on the side of the road. And you sit there on the side and going like, what? The God of the universe would rescue me up? Of course the priest will walk by and the Levite. Of course the church will fail you. Of course good people will walk by. But we as followers of Jesus, we are supposed to be here to recognize and to put more and more of our trust in the fact that the the good Samaritan is in a a funny way, if we were to flip this story, actually actually the God of the universe who who owes us nothing. The Samaritan, the most ostracized, who looks down at this man and goes, dude, I am under no obligation to help you out. You think of me as nothing. And he reaches down and he helps. Before you can give this sort of neighbor love, before you can expand your circle and include more people in it <laughs> who, are your na- who are truly your neighbors, you need to receive it. Only if you see that you have been saved graciously by someone who owes you the opposite will you go out into the world looking to help absolutely anyone in need. And so I want to pivot here because this has implications. If we're to be people that are going to respond because of God's great grace to us, we are to be people who journey outward, right? This is our discipline today to journey outward, to be people who are awake and aware of not just a place of inclusion, but people who are serving and reaching the the most vulnerable. There are multiple places in Scripture where God is doing, or the, the, the writer that God is using is doing this funny thing. Both affirming like, yes, the way in which we care for the poor, Christians get up and rise up and serve the least of these. But there's also another thing happening. So frequently, it's also addressing the actual person who's doing the serving that they need to do this for their own salvation. Let me tell you what I mean. One of my favorite passages, Leviticus 19.9. I'm just going to paraphrase here if you want to turn to it. But Leviticus 19.9, and then I'm going to jump to Deuteronomy 24. It talks about, this is an agricultural society. This is in the Torah. When you are going over your field, when you're harvesting, when you're picking the grapes, when you're hitting the fig tree, like you do, to gather the figs, to gather the grapes, to harvest everything, 
the command over and over and over is leave a little bit. Leave the edge of your field. It's a command to not be thorough. Sometimes we talk about excellence. We need to have excellence in the church. This is literally the opposite of excellence. Don't. Don't get every grape. Don't get every fig. Leave a little bit. Leave a little bit. Leave a little bit. And he says, why? Because of the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, and this is referenced throughout scripture. We've done teachings on this before. Leave a little bit for them. When the foreigner comes through your land, they'll have something to grab as they're passing through your field. Right? This is, this is like uh, the opposite, I would say, of how we kind of think of our finances in our culture. Amen? Like, I've earned this. You don't, I don't owe you anything. You could just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and you could also have. He's like, yeah, yeah, leave a little bit. Leave a little bit. And what's interesting, and many have postured this, this isn't like the game plan to deal with systemic poverty in the ancient world. It's like, here's how we're going to deal with all the poverty. Just leave a little bit in your field and hope somebody walks through it and grabs a grape. Like, nah. This has so much to do because it's linked in the same passage to the heart that you're to develop. Leave the edge of your field. Leave a little bit. And then it goes on to say, remember that your father was a wandering Aramean. Remember that you are a homeless refugee. Remember the grace of God would be one way to simply translate that. Remember the grace of God. Remember the God who pulled you up out of the ditch. Remember that everything you have, even the capacity to make a dollar, to have anything, to live where you live. Most of you like, were, like were born here. Right? 99% of you were born in this country. Like already you've just got a leg up. Even if it's like abject poverty in the States is better than abject poverty in most places around the world. Remember that everything is a gift and leave a little bit. Not as the game plan to deal with poverty in the world, though that's great and you'll provide for somebody, but for your own heart. Because what will begin to happen is the corruption of your own soul if you don't leave a little bit. If you don't. I, I don't know what the edge of your field is for you today. I don't know what it means for you to practice some sort of giving for the sake of giving that will actually begin to wake your heart up to gratefulness, to beauty, to love, to thanksgiving. That will actually begin to shape your own heart. I think that we have been blessed beyond measure. And if we don't give it away, if we don't practice giving it away, if we don't practice stewarding it well, if we don't practice stewarding it well, our own souls will shrivel up. This is about the state of our own souls. And according to Jesus' teachings, we are in trouble if we keep things to ourselves. There are 2,003 verses on the poor and the oppressed. 2,003. This is how Jesus begins, begins his actual ministry, is I've anointed you to preach good news to the poor. And so if we are to be people that are waking up to the mission of God, to be joined with him, to appreciate and understand the God who is inherently generous, who, if we're going to throw a little doctrine in here, the doctrine of the Trinity is a three-in-oneness, a God who is somehow three-in-one, a community of self-giving love. This is what God is like. And so we can't just simply wait for the need to arise and hope that maybe we'll, like, step up. Are we people that are practicing 
the life of the Good Samaritan? Are we practicing leaving the edge of our field? Are we actually embodying regular rhythms, regular rhythms of moving outward? This is how we state our outward direction. Next slide. We believe that Jesus is God in human form and that the church is God's ongoing presence in the world. Led by the Spirit of God, we are passionate about relieving suffering and fighting injustice, joining God, joining the God of the oppressed in living out the transforming message of the resurrected Jesus. Jesus calls his church to be a compelling force of good in the world, and we believe that the church is at its best when it serves, when it sacrifices, and loves caring about the things God cares about. We were created to live for something larger than ourselves. This is our value. And so the spiritual practices that need to flow from this involve, okay, identifying who is your neighbor. So one set of spiritual practices involves expanding the circle. Who are the people that you do not interact with? And maybe it's not folks you're like hostile to. Maybe it's not like Samaritan level. Like you don't have like a, you know, I don't know, like a terrorist living next door you need to like reach out to. <laughs> Maybe it's just somebody who like, like you don't go and you don't walk down that street in your neighborhood. Because that street like doesn't border like the hipster gentrifying line. It borders that other part of the city that I wouldn't walk down if I got that far. Maybe it's getting to know people. And actually engaging with work that's regular. The reason why sometimes people love, and I do this too, kind of hate on the like, oh, I go to a soup kitchen regularly. Sometimes the criticism is like, that's really, you know, not sustainable. And there's so much more we can really be doing for justice than just handouts and da-da-da, all that. That's cool. But usually the people that are criticizing those folks are the folks that are doing jack. I have found. They talk a real good game about justice, but if you were to take inventory of their life, there's like no place where they're outwardly practicing the way of Jesus. I know most folks just doing that, it's not about like there's some sustainability like, like game plan to do with poverty in our city. A lot of folks that I know who just regularly once a month go to a soup kitchen and serve, it's they're leaving the edge of the field. They're just leaving a little bit. They do not have time like all of us to go and do that, to spend a two hours a month to go do that, that is not a productive use of my time. That does not fit into my, like, five practical things for a more productive work life. Like, no, it's like the five most, like, practical things to be alive as a human being and walk the way of Jesus is just a fraction of that. It's like just go and serve somebody in a setting that's not really normal and uncomfortable and then ask God, what would you do? Wake me up. I went on a trip um, this last week to El Salvador. Uh, with World Vision and this organization called Q that we've partnered with before. And part of going, as we were t discussing, why are we all here? There are a number of issues like that were more meaningful I can talk to you about and we'll get to later on over the coming months. But the one thing that we are all most universally excited about that we're going on this grid trip, because this wasn't like a missions trip, this was a vision trip. We were literally there, flown out by World Vision just to see, just to look. And the thing that we are most excited about, of all the like prerogatives that we had and things we had to get done while we were there in terms of strategizing future things for World Vision. I was so excited, and we all shared this sentiment, to just wake up a bit out of the Western, like, coma. Man, I'm just so excited to, like, see, like, the way, like, most of the rest of the world lives. It would be really good for me. And I realized 
though this wasn't the initial point, it essentially served as one giant, rather expensive, spiritual practice. It, and it, and it, it did the trick. Can I show you a video really quick? This is uh, Kevin. Next slide. This is Kevin. That was a worship song that he wrote. He wants to be a Christian singer. Uh, he's sponsored by somebody. Uh, oh, by the way, those of you who've grown up in and around church, we asked him, "What's your? What's your? Do you have like a? Is there like an El Salvadorian like Christian singer? Salvadorian Christian singer you know really well or like that? And you know who he, met, who he said his favorite Christian singer was? Can you guess? Hillsong United. <laughs> and the guy who was leading the trip is best friends with a guitar player, so literally they shot a video of him. And anyway, it's really funny. It was just, it was amazing. Like, globalization is real, folks. Like, Hillsong and we are in the most remote area of El Salvador. This kid has no electricity. He is living on less than $2 a day, and he knows who Hillsong United is. He's a sponsor child. Somebody gives $39 a month for the next five years, hopefully longer. He told me at the age of 14, he's already achieved, like, so many of the dreams that he hoped he would achieve. He got some education. He is able to, quote, unquote, help bless other kids in his village because he realizes he has been given a grace. I love this. Being around and engaging other people who have very, 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 insert as many varied as I could fit in here, little realizing the blessing that they had been given and turning to serve others. He and his family, I don't know if I have a shot of them or not. Next slide. I don't, but that's the beautiful countryside. He has been able to provide for other families in the area, helping them with things like um, uh, child abuse and a very like machismo, patriarchal like culture. The way you discipline your kid gets a little out of control. And realizing that what physical abuse looks like, both the children and then a lot of discussion around women, this family has led the charge in helping other families in this rural area and other husbands in particular realize what it is to actually treat your wife as an equal in a culture that in no way, in no way looks upon that as a real, as a, as a reality. This family who has so little who work so hard to provide for the very little bit that they have, watching them and taking a tour of their village of all the people that they are blessing was one of these moments of the practice of somebody else's generosity, the outward direction of whoever had sponsored this one kid in this family. Not only, so we sent them, by the way, this video and these pictures. Not only are they just blessed by the act of giving and being transformed by that, it is creating another place where someone else can begin to practice the outward disciplines and begin to embody the command and desire to love those around them and to see the transformation begin to happen. This is a child as we were making dinner, and he just looked very longingly at a bowl um, that was full of rice and some interesting pasta 
kind of thing. <laughs> and as we were cooking food for him uh, and just beginning to hear some more of their stories, the translator came up and translated to me, and he's just with that sort of like unbelievable gratefulness just told me how thankful he was that people cared enough to come and like we are not providing a service to come and see what was happening and that would God just stir in our hearts an opportunity for us to bless them so this is a I don't even know how old this kid was I didn't get his age so that we could bless others it was like they had all been stamped with this every kid I talked to yeah 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 I, I just pray for opportunity that we would bless it was like directly linked directly linked. And I just thought as like I'm sitting there debriefing with all of these other pastors, and most of the pastors that were in this group are like megachurch pastors. Like I was like the little guy in this crew. And they're all just saying, oh, how good is it to wake up? Not just in all the ways we started to scheme and brainstorm about how we can get help and deal with the gang violence and do child sponsorship and all this other stuff. No, 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 no. So much of it was like, oh, I am beginning to learn more about the heart of God. I haven't had, like, ground-shaking prayer times like that in a long time. When we talk about the outward spiritual practices, in light of this context, this isn't meant to just be a sermon that lands us and care for the poor more, though you should do that. It's not just a sermon around, like, justice, like we should be people of justice, though that's important. But we're here to practice and to learn about the spiritual practices that connect us with the heart of the Father, make us more aware of God's heart, that we would then be the kinds of people that God's called us to be and live the life of the ages, the best possible way to live. And to do that means where are the places that we can practice this? What are the sorts of tools that we can embody? Do you need to expose yourself to more needs of the world? Do you need to read more about justice issues? Do you need to consider your responsibility before God for what you own? Are you a hoarder? You don't need to have a lot of money to be a hoarder. What effect does God's view of the gifts that he has given you have on you? How can you share your gifts with others? Just practicing the outward disciplines, like you don't have any time, but you're really handy. Like if you didn't sign up yet, like go and sign up for the kids' church thing. Help. We want to get started after school arts, and there's a big leadership void around our tutoring program this year. Would you be willing to meet me after the service. This is a real request, not hypothetical. Like, come and meet me after. And whether you are up for leading or just helping and being a part of it, we need you for one, like, or two hours a week, once a week, to, for two hours, to help at Reservoir Ave, a really at-risk elementary school in this city. And we need some leadership and we need some help. So whether you're an artist, whether you want to play basketball with kids, whether you just love to hang out, or you're up for tutoring third graders and you have just that level of education where you could tutor a third grader a little bit. And you could carve out two hours. These are as much about serving a school and providing a service and creating an opportunity to do justice as it is about your own heart. Leave the edges of your field. Remember that your father was a wandering Aramean. Identify with the person in the ditch being rescued by the person that you owe knows nothing to. Like everything you've been given is a gift that by God's grace we are loved, saved, forgiven, have no fear in death, and our identity rests in him. How could we not? And the reason why we don't become the generous, loving, compassionate, outward-focused people who are dialed into the heart of God is because we don't practice these, these disciplines regularly enough. We don't have them in our rhythm. Maybe some of you do, and you need to teach us. You need to help teach those around you in your home group or wherever else. 
But some of these questions I listed off, go to the website, look at some of those disciplines that you can practice. If you'd like to help out with tutoring or doing this after school art program, want to learn more, come and meet me at the front right after the service. Get involved with the soup kitchen. Get involved with some of the ministries we're a part of. Tutor somebody through Rise, the organization we're a part of. Sponsor a kid is a great way to do it through World Vision. This isn't like the way in which you will serve the poor forever. This is leaving the edge of your field. Leave the corner. Because as much as this is about helping save the world, we need to be saved first. We need to be dialed more and more into the heart of the Father so that we don't become burned out activists and we don't become people that have compassion fatigue. That we are just ready to continue to expand the circle of our neighbor and we have overflowing capacity. And lastly, as we come to the table, Some of you are actually in a place where you, not only do you need to practice the disciplines, but you're actually in a place of, of, of incredible need right now. Church, your offering has provided for three different people's rent this last month. You've enabled us to be able to give to some programs that are doing some incredible work around the city. We're in the process of, of, of dreaming up and praying up some new church communities that would help serve in other areas of the city. And so what we're going to do is as we come to the communion table, as we come to the table, take the bread and dip it in the cup as a reminder of Jesus, the good Samaritan, of a reminder of the God who has forgiven us and rescued us from our sin, as a reminder of the love that's been shown to us. We're also going to, instead of passing the basket, we're actually just going to give our offering here. We're going to come forward and, and as a, just as a, as we do this every week, but hopefully this will help identify, like one of the reasons we, we give regularly is for our own heart. We just give, we got to give stuff away. Not just so there are no needy people among us. Not just so we can participate in the renewal of our city. Not just so we can help plant more outposts of love and justice and churches in the city. No, no, no. It's for our own heart. We have to be people of generosity or we will wither and die on the vine. So may we give joyfully and abundantly. And if you're here and you have needs, would you jot that need down on the reverse side of your high card? And would you put it in here so we can provide for you? So we can care. So we can be a church where it can be said there are no needy people among us. And after you give, would you go and take the bread and dip it in the cup? And as the servers say to you, Christ's body broken and his blood poured out for you. Would you be reminded of the grace and love and generosity of our God? Let me pray. We thank you, God, for the story of the Good Samaritan. We thank you for this story that I, I could have preached like eight different sermons out of that, that story. I thank you that you are the God who blows away the, the sort of categories of who is in and out. Thank you that you are a God of mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you, you challenge the systems that exclude. Thank you that you have a heart of gratitude, a posture of generosity and of mercy toward us. That while we were still sinners, you died for us. 
that for you so loved the world that you gave your only son. That you are patient, not wanting anyone to not come to know you in your way, in your life. That we have been reconciled to you. That you have shown us grace. And that, Lord, like it says in Ephesians, by grace we have been saved in order that we would do good works, in order that we would serve. And so I pray, Lord, as we give, as we take the the bread and the cup, you would stir in us a practice, maybe something we've read, something I mentioned, maybe something that just kind of like comes out of nowhere, like something you just insert into our consciousness now. One thing, Lord, this week, one discipline that we can practice, an outward-focused practice, that we would become, Lord, people who are walking in eternal life. In your name we pray. Amen. As you feel led, feel free to come forward up the center aisle, leave your gift, take the bread and the cup and come back and we'll close our time together. If you're new with us, please feel no... Uh, no, no, uh, uh, I always forget this word, obligation to give. Please feel no obligation to give. Uh, this is a gift to you. Uh, and if you give online, many of you give regularly online in regular automated giving. Uh, link's all there in the thing. Um, this may sound silly, but maybe just, like, remember that you do that. Like, don't let that just be this automated thing that happens just because you want to be faithful, which is great. But maybe as you come forward, just sort of make the act of like throw, putting your hand down and giving. You just remember that there's something in that posture of that money that goes out of your account is, is part of helping you grow up into the person of Jesus. So as you feel led, come forward.
us hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, let us never judge. Where there is striving, we scream of your peace. To all who cry for release, to all who cry for release. Where there is blindness, we pray for sight. Where there is darkness, may we shine your light. Where there is sadness, we'll bear the grief. To all who cry for release, to all who cry for release, Lord, make us hands of your peace. Through us, let your love increase. These walls of pride and injustice will cease. Lord, make us your hands of peace. Would you stand and sing this prayer with us? Where there is hatred, let us show love. Where there is injury, let us never judge. Where there is striving, we scream of your peace. To all who cry for release. To all who cry for release. Lord, make us hands of your peace. Through us, let your love increase. These walls of pride and injustice will cease. The Lord, make us your hands of peace. We sing as one, Lord. We are your children. Pour out your spirit upon the broken. And oh, loving Father, come and draw near us. We see your glory. Know that you hear us.